everybody, and welcome to the Weekend Review edition of the Total Soccer Show. I'm your host, Taylor Rockwell. Joining me on the other end of the line, I've got a man whose neighbor is doing yard work and he's not sure how to feel about it. It's Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Oh, hello, Tay-Tay. Thank you for pointing out my neighbor's yard work. They've started mm-hmm. it at an inopportune moment when I wanted to record some high-fidelity uh, sound in, in my studio here. But hey, we can get through it. It's all good. How was your Thanksgiving? It was uh, terrific after I spent, I think, 47 or 48 hours uh, doing the renovations I needed to do for us to be able to host Thanksgiving. Uh, Ah. Turns out when you sort of uh, late Friday night, early Saturday morning when when my wife and I decided, uh, maybe after a few drinks, that it was time to finally do the work we wanted to do in the kitchen before we had everybody over. Uh, In the future, maybe better to plan that one out a little bit more is what I've learned, Ryan Bailey. You started doing major kitchen renovations while drunk. Is that what you're saying? We uh, bought the materials to do the renovations, and then at that point, we're sort of pot committed. Uh, so then, <laughs> but those materials, despite paying for next day shipping, did not arrive until Tuesday morning. So it uh, it was a hectic process, but it got done, and and that was lovely. And then the food itself was great. Hanging out with family always great. Uh, uh-huh. A weekend of soccer equally great, and now talking to you the most great. Oh, you're too kind. I spent forty seven hours doing something else, watching the Irishman. Ah, that'll, that'll do it. Is it that? Is it that long? Does it feel that long? Daryl, like Daryl, blocked off an entire Saturday for it. Is that what so, I need to do? I started watching on Thanksgiving evening, and I just mm. finished it this morning. <laughs> continuous. And I'm, ass- I'm assuming that wasn't continuous watching. Right? Continuous. There continuous. It's that long. It's, it felt that long. It's good, <laughs> but uh, I've, I've I've got this thing where I can't stand a movie that's over two hours. I think it's arrogant to make your movie over two hours. And I've seen three three. I've seen two three hour plus movies this year, including the Tarantino one. Ah. Oh man, I like you know that's why I like soccer. It's in two hours and you're done most of the time. God. Yeah, I feel like so- soccer's got that down. Hockey's got that down. Baseball less so, which maybe explains why you've why you've moved towards hockey instead of baseball, Ryan. Indeed, yes. Baseball and cricket are the the, the, the two outliers. There. I suppose NFL's kind of it's designed so you don't have to pay attention the whole time, so that's kind of acceptable that it's a bit longer too. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, well, I I appreciate you with all of that still having the time and energy to watch some of the games we're going to be talking about. As always, we're going to start off with the Premier League. We're going to get to a few other uh, leagues of Europe, and then maybe a quick chat slash extended chat about the Euros at the end. Ooh. But to start off, uh, Liverpool. Get the job done against Brighton with a headed brace from Virgil van Dijk. Uh, the result made, uh, like, was already sort of big, made slightly bigger by what happened earlier in the day with Newcastle United picking up a late draw against Manchester City. So, Ryan, let's go to Newcastle versus Manchester City. Uh, where are your thumbs? What were your thoughts on this game? Newcastle, the Manchester City Achilles heel, just as they were last season. After that game last season when they lost 2-1, James's, they had to win 14 games in a row to close out that season. Doesn't look like this City team are capable of stringing together that many losses in a row. I'd like to go for a a dual thumbs up, thumbs down here for Mm. the managers. Thumbs up for Brucey, thumbs down for Pep. I think it's time for Pep Guardiola to leave. I was wondering if that was going to be the narrative uh, from you today, but uh, mm. that has been the sort of source of much speculation that he seems frustrated, he seems like his, his kind of temper is shorter than it used to be, he doesn't seem as patient with the players. That said, I've seen a lot of reporting that the players themselves are okay with things, that it seems to be business as usual, and it's just eh. sort of a rough patch. So what has you thinking maybe it's time? Well, mainly the all the things you said there, the mm-hmm. fact that they don't look like they're as, they've got as much fortitude as they had in the previous few seasons. If you compare this team to see the team, let's say, two seasons ago, it just looks like a shadow of it, doesn't it? They're not doing the same things they were mm-hmm. doing before. It looks like 
you know, there, there's probably a reason why Pep only spends a limited amount of seasons at a particular team. I think he probably wears them out and they have enough of him jumping around on his haunches shouting, come on, guys, on a whiteboard. Mm. And they can't <laughs> handle that for more than three seasons, perhaps. And I think we're seeing the end of the maturity of his period at Manchester City here. I don't think he has the command over them that he did previously. That's what I'm getting from what I'm seeing on the field. And also Pep making some poor errors. I've said this time and time and time again on this, but once again we saw Fernandinho being played as a centre-back here where he doesn't have to have that uh, be playing him back there. And actually the the, the last time they played Newcastle, uh, the 2-1 last season, it was, I believe, Fernandinho who gave up a penalty which, uh, for, the, for the winning Newcastle goal. So once again, proving the theory that uh, Manchester City are only generally in trouble when Fernandinho is out of position, makes a mistake or is not there. So I, th- I think that was, it shows the mistakes they made in the summer by not reinforcing a centre-back. I know I sound like a broken record because I bring this up every darn week, but it's true. I just think that I, it is probably time for Pep to go, but... On the other hand, I have no idea where City go after Pep because they've been building this project basically since the start, moulding it in the Guardiola, uh, into a Guardiola team. And I don't know who takes over the reins if he does go. A, a couple things there. I appreciate that you've been the broken record, especially on the Fernandinho centre-back situation, because I do think like having that sort of regularity of that argument that you've espoused uh, allows you to then continue to argue it. Whereas I feel like a lot of the narrative this weekend has been sort of things aren't right at Man City, but no one is entirely confident in saying why or what has gone wrong. And so you'll have conversations about Leroy Sana not getting minutes and how some players are frustrated. You'll get the Fernandinho conversation. You'll get the lack of strengthening at center back. Um, other little ones in there, oh, the departure of Vincent Company and how that factored into kind of a lack of leadership within the team. But yeah. no one seems to have a clear idea of exactly what is happening or why City aren't quite there. So I appreciate that you have sort of had that idea of they should have strengthened, they didn't quite strengthen, now he's playing people out of position. Maybe that's uh, making him a little bit more well, annoyed than he would be otherwise. Yeah, I mean, at least they went 4-4-3-3 four, 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 three, three this weekend, mm-hmm. which has been something he's been eschewing away from, which I think has been a mistake as well. But this, it's just like this team used to watch it and it felt like a work of art. It felt like every player was doing something beautiful. Every player looked threatening. There was lots of these incisive passes and it looked terrifying every time they went forward. And it seems like they're a bit of a pastiche of that now. A facsimile, a facsimile, facsimile. I've no idea how to say that word out loud, but a copy of yeah. the previous team they used to be. And I think one of the big issues here, and it does go back to central defence, is, you know, Laporte and company were huge in the back there, literally and figuratively speaking. Mm-hmm. And they've missed that terribly and they failed to uh, replace that adequately. It's it's the they're like to your point about them being a copy. It's the old sci-fi mainstay of like when you start cloning a character and then one of the clones clones themselves and now it's a way inferior version of the character. That's what I feel like you have a copy of a copy is what you're looking at with this Man City team because you do have just like to your point like you have these moments where Daryl and I call them like the FIFA goal, but it's the easy goal you score in FIFA when you dribble in at the goalkeeper, or the goalkeeper comes out and you square it to just your teammate who's open and you tap it in and it's yeah. a goal. City used to score those goals all the time by quick little passes pass, 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 pass across the top of the box and then somebody's open for a tap end or someone's kind of at the back post to instep at home and contrast that with this game against Newcastle where it's a lot of shots from tighter angles, it's rushed shots, it's hurried opportunities and you do get the sense that it's just, it's not quite settling for Man City and and again, going back to your like kind of broken record feeling, I feel the same, it's the reason why we kind of skipped past Liverpool is that what can we say about that Liverpool result that we kind of haven't already said, that it's Liverpool not necessarily impressed 
pressing from start to finish, having moments where they seemed vulnerable. Brighton could have scored a, a few uh, if there hadn't been some good defensive plays from Liverpool. Yet Liverpool find a way to win and hold on. Uh, and and it's impressive that they are able to do so with only ten men. But it's a lot of what we've said: of they find a way to win. They don't necessarily play pretty the whole time, but they still get the result. Contrasting yeah. it with Man City, who don't necessarily play the prettiest soccer compared to what we've seen from them in the past, but they don't find that extra way to win. And so now you have this 11-point gap and you have these questions about what happens next and where do we go from here. My question in the more immediate future for you, Ryan, having watched Man City, covered Man City, do you think we'll see them invest in January? So far they have said they will not, that there's not as much money, but it seems like uh, sources that have reported to reporters uh, would indicate that maybe there will be some movement or at least some interest in a couple different players I, th- I think it's too late I think it's too late mm-hmm. in January I think they should have made the moves in the summer and they made the wrong moves in the summer buying fullbacks and Rodri- Rodrigo and you know all these mm-hmm. players they didn't necessarily need I mean they could go let's say they go for Koulibaly mm-hmm. and they get a real quality centre back in there and Laporte's likely to be fit in January so they kind of missed the boat on bringing in well I, they could also they obviously could do reinforcements bringing in another, another you know top tier centre back might not be the best move I think I can't see many other areas of the field where they need to strengthen like they do there and I think they probably miss the boat and if I might jump back a second Tate mm-hmm. into, into the idea of the, the, the point you're making about them not being a copy of the previous team let's look at a couple of the goals so sure. the, the, the first goal we got that Sterling and Silver combo on the left where Sterling finishes it off it wasn't it didn't follow the normal City goal pattern because if you look Benjamin Mendy actually starts with the ball before he hands off to Sterling and he passes it infield he doesn't push forward down the flank usually the City mm-hmm. fullback will push forward and they'll drive it to the end you know drive it to the touchline and then they'll cut it back and do that tapping goal they always do Mendy just stood there started walking very slowly once the goal started building he didn't push forward he didn't do that normal City fullback thing and he had a very poor game and I thought that was a big indication of how He's kind of lost it, I'm afraid to say, Benjamin Mendy. He was nowhere near as fast, nowhere near as on it, not doing Benjamin Mendy things, not doing Man City things, and that was a good indication of it. Then you look at, say, the second goal, and it's, it's a big goal. I think it was Mendy who put the cross in, which, and it was a big aerial cross, not a typical City thing to do, and it's something that Pep does or instructs his team to do, pump in the crosses when they're frustrated, and Newcastle had them frustrated. Yes, you had that good De Bruyne uh, finish on it, but but you know it, it was it wasn't the typical city build up and then the goal they concede the 2-2 you've got that low um free kick low on the edge of the box to John Joe Shelby who powers it in a great finish there no one near him within five yards. And Steve Bruce has a quote after the game. I'd love to say that goal was due to wonderful training ground coaching, but John Joe saw City had nobody on the edge of the box, which is very rare for teams these days, burn, and had a word with Christian. So that's, you know, Rod- Rodrigo is the closest player. He tries to get the block in, but he's way off of him. And, th- and that just seems like in the way this team should be drilled, leaving John Joe Shelby on the edge of the box there for a free kick. Another example of how this City team is not doing Pep Guardiola things right now. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. And I would add to that that, like, 
it's it's the old narrative of it's really difficult to repeat as champions because you lose some of that killer instinct. You don't have that fight to regain the top spot. Instead, it's you have that fight to retain that top spot. Now you've got a Man City team who are trying to win it for the third straight time, and and I have to believe that some of that like like is even greater. Some of that like lack of desire, that lack of fight, that lack of just awareness because it's a little bit more like ah we've we've kind of done it before. And I'm like I am not a professional soccer player. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. You know. to say like I understand it entirely. Yeah, I know. I should have. I should have made that clear to you in the very beginning. I know that's why you initially signed up to do this show, Ryan. Is because you this thought is I was now. a pro. I know. I know. I've ruined everything. But like, <laughs> but I do just. I do just think to, like that is an a the best possible way I can think of to explain Man City from two seasons ago and how you're as somebody would have been sitting on the, on the top of the eighteen or would have been man marking John Joe Shelby or at least been incredibly physical with him and not giving him an easy shooting opportunity versus this team where it's just kind of sitting off and and. Not expecting a win. I don't want to put it in those terms of like, oh, they're just arrogant and they think they're going to win every time. But it's just, it's less of that clinical ruthlessness, that efficiency that you have to have if you want to repeat as champions or if you want to win the title outright. And you contrast that with what Liverpool have been able to do in moments where they just find a way to win, they claw it through, or they have comprehensive performances. But you don't see those sort of like, oh, they didn't rise to the occasion, they gave up too many chances, and they were punished for it. Uh, So I think... This was a very interesting game to me in terms of what happens next, because I think that will be the dominant question now, especially with City being so far behind 11 points at this point. I think the narrative does become Liverpool have got the title in hand. What are City going to do next? Are they going to reinforce? Is this it for Guardiola? Guardiola, what's going to happen with Man City? That seems to be the way the narrative is turning, which I think is indicative of how people think this title challenge is going to go. Mm, it's definitely not over I think the 11 point it's a bit of a misnomer to suggest it's over but I think that this City team is as I say reaching the end of the arc of its uh, superiority that's not to say I don't think they can do something in the Champions League which seems to be where Guardiola is focusing his attention but mm. I don't know there's, there's a lot there's a lot there was lots wrong with this game from a Man City perspective and including a lot of individual poor performances as well Benjamin Mendy I think as a, I think it's sad to say I think he's not the player he was um, Gabriel Zeus, I don't think is a great stand-in for Sergio Aguero. I mean, even on that that um, Shelby equalising free kick, I'd expect maybe even Aguero to be on the edge of the box there mm-hmm. to to intercept. He, you know, I don't know where Gabriel Zeus was in that situation. I have to rewatch it again, but. I don't know. There was there was lots of sub opt. No, I'm not going to use that word. There's lots of poor things going on. <laughs> the city in this yeah, I, I, and I think it's a lot of little things that uh, if things were going well, we wouldn't even talk about it. Would be like, oh, he's found a way to get something out of Benjamin Mendy. He's found a way to get something out of Gabriel Jesus. But because things aren't going well. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the kind of negative inverse of things. Uh, we should give a little bit of credit. You began this by saying thumbs up to Steve Bruce, thumbs down to Pep Guardiola. Why were you giving thumbs up to Steve Bruce aside from the, just that his Newcastle team found a way to get a, a result, a point against Man City? I just think this is it's a great great story for Steve Bruce personally. His expect, the expectations on him were so low when he came to this team. Mm-hmm. And Newcastle, what they've lost one in their last five. They've taken point, uh, three points off West Ham and Bournemouth. They, you know, they only lost that game against Villa the Monday night last week. Uh, they drew um, Wolves not so long ago. I think I they're think- doing really well. And you know. He's managed to get Miguel Almiron involved in a game. Can you believe it? <laughs> it? It was the way the commentators were were talking about how he's finally gotten his assist, and then it cut to Miguel Almiron, who already sort of looks like a 
a, a a big a big child is the way I'm going to put it. Not like a grown up <laughs> child, but just he looks like a bigger kid, and just him kind of sheepishly smiling was the way a kid would smile if he finally got his assist. So I, I, I did enjoy that. I did also enjoy. I believe the stat was that they're two points better at this point uh, in the season than they were last season under Rafa Benitez, which is wow. not a thing I expected. Uh, definitely did not think Newcastle would be in this position, would be doing the things they're doing. So yes, uh, I echo your sentiments, Ryan. I give thumbs up to Steve Bruce and uh, Newcastle. Anything else you want to get to from this game? Yeah, just just re- reiterating that Newcastle had 23% possession in this game. They were so disciplined. <laughs> yeah. 23% possession and they came away with a, a, a draw and scored two goals in this one. And they, you know, they, were, they were very defensive, but they still had pace when they got forward. And I'm, I'm being slightly cheeky about Almiron because he, he's actually more effective than his stats suggest I think I think he was, wasn't great in that Villa game but otherwise when I've seen him he does he's fairly unselfish in, in, in his contributions and I, just, I think that you know the whole Steve Bruce narrative is working out nicely for him because this should have been a great homecoming for him and a great occasion but it, it was a bit underwhelming when he came in and I'm glad it's working out well uh, even if it's to the detriment of City oh, I don't care if it's to the detriment of City actually who cares <laughs> uh, well we have many other games to discuss uh, but before we get to those we should talk about another thing that's working quite well our friends at SeatGeek uh, today's show is brought to you by our friends at SeatGeek Ryan do you ever feel like ticketing websites make getting to the event uh, difficult on purpose and I don't mean getting to the event and in terms of like they make navigating there difficult. I mean that they're so big they can get away with not caring about customer experience. But with SeatGeek, I don't believe that that is the case. Definitely not. Uh, yeah, I think you're quite right there. SeatGeek is very, very, very easy to use. They've got more than 50,000 five-star reviews in the App Store, which is testament to that fact, Tay-Tay. Uh, what I love about this, and I say it time and time again, is their traffic light system uh, when you find your tickets. Uh, this, and they're also rated on a scale of 1 to 10, not necessarily by the best price of ticket, but by the best value. Par example, oh, I'm boy. going to Las Vegas this weekend, and I bought my tickets for the... Golden Knights, I think they're uh-huh. called, something yep. like that. So I'm really into NHL, as you can tell. Um, I got those on SeatGeek, and I got a really good deal. Not the most expensive tickets in the house, but the best value. And I got five of them together, which would have been very difficult on certain official ticket uh, distributors, I imagine. But SeatGeek made it gosh darn easy, Tay-Tay. Is this a, is this a stag do sort of situation if you're getting five tickets together? Uh, it, it's people who are all married now, actually. Ah, <laughs> we're, okay. we're boring. <laughs> uh, so this has been this has been a much uh, discussed tri- trip and uh, sporting event you're going to be taking in. Mm. So are you preparing yourself? Have you been watching hockey? Have you been going to other games, uh, or is it going to be a, a first time sort of situation for you? No, hockey very much a sideshow for me. I'm all about the Las Vegas actually. Uh, I'm actually going to um, I'm actually going to another event there. I'm going to see the Intersect Festival. A friend of the show, Adam, who plays bass for Casey Musgraves, mm-hmm. uh, headlining that show. I'm very much looking forward to seeing that. Have you got on Casey Musgraves yet? By the way, she's amazing. I, I, I have enjoyed I've enjoyed her. I've been listening to her since uh, you first uh, brought her to my attention, and since you first went to see her using SeatGeek and uh, met Adam, and now you guys are best friends. I think so. I, I'm excited for uh, how that's going to go, uh, and I'm excited to say that SeatGeek we'll give our listeners $10 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Uh, All they need to do is use the promo code TSS. Uh, Just download the SeatGeek app today. Use promo code TSS for $10 off your first purchase. One more time, that's code TSS for $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Thank you very much to SeatGeek for sponsoring today's episode. Uh, Thank you very much to the Premier League for giving us fixture congestion and giving us lots to discuss. Uh, (laughs) I think we'll probably pick back up uh, where we left off last week with uh, the 
saga of Tottenham. Tottenham 3, Bournemouth 2, third straight win under Jose Mourinho, and everything is right with the world. He is the perfect manager. Nothing will ever go wrong. Uh, at least I believe that's sort of the narrative right now, especially since he, uh, he likes ball boys and whatnot. Oh, gosh. The bo- the- can I give thumbs down straight away to the ball boy narrative? Please, please. I mean, yes, it's great that the ball boy played his part in that goal last week, and it's fantastic that Mourinho gave him recognition. But I think I saw him sitting on a throne being fanned by Dele Ali at some point <laughs> during this game. What What's next? Are they going to start making merchandise with the ball boy? We're going to get ball boy lunchboxes for the kids at school now. What? I mean, it's it, it feels like a bit of a sideshow as much as it was a nice thing. It just seems like a bit PR-y now. So me. I just I just saw that he was gonna uh, that he invited the ball boy out that he was gonna continue this and now like each week there was gonna be a new ball boy or, or ball kid who was allowed to kind of walk with the team for the beginning. Is this is this uh, you said it's because the ball boy helped with the win? Is it like did he get the ball back into play really quickly? Is that what happened? Uh, I, I believe that's the narrative. Okay. Yeah. Now now we have a ball boy stadium is now what the uh, new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium is <laughs> going to be called. I believe this new press release just came out. <laughs> Um, slightly more worrying for Spurs, I would say, is that once again, they go up big, they look dominant, uh, they're playing direct, they're playing Mourinho ball, uh, which is all the kind of familiar symptoms of Jose Mourinho coming in. He takes over, he installs his system, he brings back players who are kind of out of favor or puts players who've been playing out of position back into the position they want to be in. He gets the results. He does a few little marketing things here and there to sort of like <laughs> make everybody think like, oh, Jose's changed. He's friendly. He likes kids all of a sudden. The worrying thing, I would say, if you're a Spurs fan, potentially, is that they've scored 10, conceded 6 in these last three games. They keep not being able to, to keep clean sheets. Um, and similar to the Man City conversation we were having, I cannot tell if this is like a, actually an issue that's being papered over by the results or if I'm just being nitpicky and the reality is they're winning, so who cares? Ryan, where do you fall on that one? I think it's a little bit of the both, but I'd say that basically Rome wasn't built in a day. And... He's got this team firing, certainly, but he has not yet instilled in them the art of parking the bus, the art of closing out a game in the final 20, 25 minutes. So maybe um, if if uh, Ball Boy FC get their way, they'll make all games 70 minutes long from now on and they'll, you know, they'll be able to win all of them <laughs> to clean sheets. But uh, it's, <laughs> it, it, it just feels like this is definitely still a work in progress, this team. There's still issues with closing out, still issues with concentration all the way through a game. But the signs are positive, are they not? And for the mm. neutral... I love seeing them, you know, have three, two games every week. It's great. That is a very good point. That does make things uh, more exciting. And I think just kind of the way they've gone about getting some of these goals, it's a bit more vertical, as I said. It's a bit more direct. Uh, the the son assist for Dele Ali's goal, I think his opener, uh, was a thing of beauty. Just the one touch out of the air kills it dead into the path of Dele Ali to finish. Just lovely team play they're like that's a combination of team play and individual play somehow but it, it was a a sequence that you would expect of a team that's been playing together for the entire season and been sort of learning together figuring it out together and now they're kind of hitting their prime whereas this is a Tottenham team that just sacked the manager brought in a new one and three games in seem to be kind of rediscovering some form it does make me wonder if maybe it is the case that they just kind of needed a change in manager yeah, definitely. No, just check your text messages there for a second, Taylor. And I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> I blame Gerald Grove for texting to ask how things are going in the middle of the the, uh, the show. <sighs> Put it on silent, bro. Ah, I actually I don't know how to mute my computer while I'm talking to you for fear that I will then lose your audio. So it's my computer that's giving me the notifications. I'm going to go ahead sure. and close messages now. We'll see if that helps. Sure.
Bull Boy wouldn't have made such a mistake like that. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I, know, anyway. I know, right? But, now I'm but, never going to get to do the team walk. I don't know what but, to do anymore. <laughs> building on your point of the direct goals here, I found this very interesting. I know it was a Pochettino trait to move the ball from one end to the other with a minimal amount of touches, but there was something that felt route one and very old-fashioned about these like, yep. older viral QBing the ball down the field like that. It was... And... Was it the, the there was two goals? That was the third one was from a sort of old fashioned kind of cross as well. And yep. How many how many of the Mourinho goals have been from big old aerial crosses from uh, this in in the Mourinho era? I think quite a lot of them, haven't they? I, I, at least a few. Yeah, at I can't least say I watched the midweek Champions League game, which they won four two. But I'm going to assume at least one was in there. If they got four goals, one of them had to be a big cross. So like when you know you know what the genius is when one some zig the other zag. Is Mourinho's technique here to uh, in in a world of playing the ball beautifully along the floor and through the middle? Just going old-fashioned Route One Wimbledon in the '80s style. Is this what he's? Because like the, um, you know, uh, Eddie Howe said after the game, it was something we discussed and worked on. At, that is uh, re- working on their direct play, but sometimes it doesn't look like it. I.e., they had they couldn't prepare for what Tottenham had there. And in this world, is this actually quite smart of Mu to play like this because no teams are set up to deal with it anymore? It's actually, I'm glad you brought up the Eddie Howe point because he seemed genuinely very annoyed or as annoyed as Eddie Howe can seem that they had conceded from direct, like direct long balls and sort of direct opportunities. And I think you're right that it's, it's difficult to defend against. And historically, Jose Mourinho, the kind of narrative or the critique of him when it's not going well is he sets his teams up very defensively and then he just sort of relies on his creative attacking players to make something happen. So his attacking game plan is almost just give it to the best players, see what they do. And it almost feels like Tottenham are kind of the ideal candidate for that setup, that they've got a lot of individual players who can be good on their own up top, who can make something happen, but can also combine really, really well. So I wonder if it's a a product of him sort of going with what he's always done of bringing in a a bit of a long ball and kind of hoping that the attackers make something happen. But simultaneously, he talked about uh, when he first came into Spurs that he had kind of modified his approach. He changed it up a little bit. He had recognized that he needed to adapt. And maybe this is him adapting, is just working on the patterns of it a bit more, working on the moments when a player drops in and another one runs in behind and vice versa. They did seem to have those kind of runs and patterns down so that the recognition was there. So I wonder if this is just a thing that he is fully embracing because so many teams are trying to press and play out of the press and play possession soccer and play positional soccer if Mourinho is just like no we're going to double down on long ball but do it better than anybody else yeah definitely I think it seems to be what's going on here and playing to the strengths doing something a little Mm -hmm. bit differently and getting something out of players we never didn't necessarily think uh, it could be got out Mm -hmm. of case in point Moussa Sissoko scoring a goal scored a volley scoring it like a nice one too that then he got tackled by Serge Aurier I think partially out of celebration (laughs) partially because Serge Aurier was also there to maybe get a volley off but Sissoko uh, got the glory Uh, and Mourinho gets the glory as well I guess we'll say thumbs up to him and Tottenham for that win yeah Uh, I don't know what our thumbs are going to be for uh, Norwich v Arsenal. That one finishes uh, 2-2. A result that I think at the beginning of the season, Arsenal fans would not have loved. Uh, but given the way things have gone and the fact that they have a new temporary potential permanent manager, we'll see what happens there. Uh, maybe they're a little bit more pleased by that result. Ryan, where are your thumbs in this one? Oh, boy. Hmm. All over Freddie Lundberg. <laughs> I don't know. Where, I don't know why I feel about this one, but I do know that Arsenal are definitely obsessed with two-two um, score lines. I believe yeah. they've had a two-two score line against all three of the teams in the relegation zone currently. Uh, Perfect. Yeah, and also Crystal Palace. They do love a two-two. So um, if, you, if you're in the relegation zone, you know what you're getting when Arsenal uh, come to play. But 
I mean, there was there was a lot wrong with this. I mean, obviously, Lundberg, let's give him credit here. He's only probably had one training session. And we know that Arsenal bizarrely love to fly to Norwich, so his team are probably all jet-lagged for that 45-minute car <laughs> journey, which <laughs> uh, I don't know why they do that. But there were some interesting uh, team decisions here with Joseph Willock coming in, mm-hmm. um, uh, Gabriel Martinelli coming in at the end as well. But... Granite Shaka Bring starting. Yeah, Granite Shaka starting. Mustafi coming in as well. Um, and yeah. Mustafi and David Luiz, I ask you, is there a worse centre-back pairing in the Premier League? Uh, I, I don't think so. I think it's up there. Because even even a team like Manchester United, who we can mention briefly, uh, at least they have like Harry Maguire, who you would say you put in that Arsenal team. He, he bumps them up a little bit. Maybe even Victor Lindelof bumps up Arsenal a little bit. David Luiz and Mustafi... Watching the high, like the montage of them, I was going to say highlight, but that is very much the wrong term. The low light, if you will, of them mm. not closing down, of them standing off, of them failing to track, of them not challenging for balls. I, I, I don't really know uh, what Freddie Lundberg does with them aside from sit one or both, but that he brought Mustafi back in says maybe he's inclined to give them both a chance and see if maybe he can turn it around. Mustafi, Lots of maybes like, in there. But- Lots of maybes. I mean, surely this was the the thing to Lundberg's like, giving him a chance, but now realizes surely we can't play him again because I mean, if he's not on the floor, he's uh, he's standing five yards off off of his attacker. Basically, yep. that's his only two things that he does. And Norwich were break because they're great credit. Norwich were breaking fiercely here, and you know, on their goals they look fantastic on the break. Uh, that first one where uh, Pookie kind of loses Lewis and Mustafi sort of standing there whistling with his arms behind his back, not wanting to put in a challenge, and the, the, flop, the shot gets deflected in. It just seems like that these players are just not working very hard. And I can understand if they felt, well, I, I shouldn't understand because they're professionals, but I can understand if they weren't performing for Emery, but they should be able to get a bit of new manager bounce. And it didn't seem like that was happening uh, with this set of players. No, I, I, I think w- one thing I would say, again, establishing that I am not a professional player, so I'm pulling from amateur experience here, but I have played in teams that were like with some guys who were, who were very, very good. As they get older, as they get a little bit heavier, maybe the waistline expands a bit, they get a little bit slower, and there's maybe that awareness of, I'm not going to be able to make up that ground, I'm not going to be able to put that tackle in the way I used to, or if I go in for that challenge, it's probably going to be a yellow card, whereas maybe two years ago I would have made it cleanly. And I think the inclination then is, well, I'm going to sit off a little bit more, I'm going to give myself a cushion, so they'll take that first touch, but I have a couple more yards to get up to top speed, so by the time we're neck and neck, I'm at top speed, I'll be able to win that ball. But that's almost never how it goes, because if you're not giving that player that immediate pressure, they have all the control, they have all the time to figure out, well, no, I'm not going to take that touch into space and get into a foot race. I'm going to stand up, and then I'm going to dribble at you slowly, and then I'm going to do a move, or I'm going to find a pass. And I think because there's that little lack of pace, because there's that fear of getting beat from both Luis and Mustafi and other Arsenal defenders as well, I think you're finding these little moments of opportunity for smart attackers like Timu Puki to take advantage of. And I think until... They are either backed to get in there and win that challenge, and that's what we ask of you. Even if you're beat, we want you fighting for it. Or until those center backs are replaced by younger players who maybe don't stand off but do go in for those challenges, I think you are going to see more of these strange moments of, why is no one defending anybody in Arsenal's box? And why are they allowing an attacker to shoot unmarked uh, with no pressure on them at all? Uh, I think those will continue to be the case, uh, despite Freddie Lundberg probably focusing on that in his next training session. Yeah, definitely. Norwich are a bit of a confusing entity, aren't they? That I mean, they are. They, they seem are. to have these big games like against the big boys when they're on TV. They have these lovely performances like this. But then, obviously, 
their shortcomings come out in lesser games. And we know when, when they're in a championship, they conceded a lot of goals on the way to winning it. And we knew that they would be pretty gung-ho. But it, se- it seems like when I watch them play like this, I'm like, why are you guys, you shouldn't be struggling as much as you are. It's very bizarre. And my mm-hmm. other question for you, Tay-Tay. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Everton and Arsenal. One yeah. plays in blue, one plays mm-hmm. in red. Give me some other differences, because I can't tell them apart right now. <laughs> Well, uh, Arsenal have already fired their manager, and they have a caretaker in place. That's about what I've got for you. It, you're not wrong that you've got a lot of, like, you've got some players that we thought were maybe past their prime or weren't going to be performing anymore or suddenly still being involved, but some new players who we thought would be big performers and star performers are not being involved. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Pepe comes to mind for, for this game for Arsenal. Um, you've got questions about what exactly is the long-term plan for these teams and even what's the short-term plan. I take your point. There are definitely some similarities there. Maybe it's just that Freddie Lundberg uh, has a bit more of a grace period right now than Marco Silva. Yeah, it just seems like they've got similar manager situation that they've made bad choices. They're both sort of middling in that same part of the table. And they, they've got these players who you think on paper look fantastic, but they just don't perform as a unit as well as they should. I think there's, this, there's, a, there's a lot of similarities to be drawn there. All right, then let me ask you this. I, I was going to give you two teams. I'll add, I'll add Everton to that mix. Who do you think is in a worse <clears throat> position right now? Or who is in the worst position right now? Arsenal having just sacked Unai Emery, brought in Freddie Lundberg, but obviously lots of work to be done. Man United under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer continuing to drop points, uh, and there seems to be no pressure on him to turn that around. And Marco Silva and Everton uh, with everything that's happening there. And maybe he's even been fired by the time of this recording. Uh, I don't believe he has been, but you never know know given how things have gone Ryan who do you think is in the worst position of those three teams uh, quite literally speaking it's Everton because they're just above the relegation mm-hmm. zone and I think uh, I think if Silver hasn't gone by the time we finish speaking then I think he will do by the Wednesday games if they don't get something out of midweek it's a difficult question though because it's one of expectation isn't it and yeah. I think that perhaps perhaps there's less expectation on Lumbo because he's brand new and but at the same time, Arsenal were a team who've continually, the fans have continually expected more of them. And I suppose you could say the same of Manchester United in the post-Ferguson era as well. So, well, I don't know, what's, what's your answer to your own question? I think I'm tempted to say Everton, but I could, I could see you making a case for one of the other two. I think I think if you're looking from a like things are going to get better standpoint, Arsenal are probably in the best position just for, because Freddie Lundberg is in there now. He is in a caretaker capacity. They came out and said that like he would be considered, but other candidates would be as well, or that's kind of the reporting so far. So it seems like they have made a change to try to get a response, and now you've got a manager who's going to bring everybody back in, see who fits where, and see if anything fits. Everton, I think, are maybe in second, because, and maybe they're in third, given the position of the fact that they are in an actual relegation battle right now. But I do think they'll probably make a change themselves and try to figure it out, similar to Arsenal. Man United, I don't think, are going to make any changes. I think they're going to stick with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer because they kind of have to. Uh, but it doesn't seem like his approach... Do they to have the to? I mean, it, I think that Ed Woodward at this point knows that if he sacks another manager, there's no way he can say, like, oh... Fourth time's a charm, or fifth time's a charm at this point. Like, I, I think he kind of has to own the fact that he has made a mistake, and so I think he is not going to want to do that, so he's going to give Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as long as he possibly can. It mm. does sound like the board backs that decision for whatever reason, so I, I think it's just going to be more inconsistency for United, whereas maybe it will be dramatic action to change what's been happening at Everton, and then we've already seen dramatic uh, action at Arsenal. 
Yeah, definitely. And, and let, let's talk about the Arsenal manager question then, because there's been some speculation in the press on Monday today that um, Lundberg might be given the role for the rest of the summer, might be given mm-hmm. the permanent job, rest of the summer, rest of the season, and he might be I given the you. permanent job as well. Um, do you think that's a wise choice? Do you think they should try and bring in, a, say, an Allegri or someone else who's free right now? Or, as everyone seems to suggest, should it be Brendan Rodgers who comes in in the summer? And would Brendan Rodgers be stark raving mad to leave Leicester for this mess? I actually, that was one thing I was going to add to today's show notes was like, where next for Brendan Rodgers? Because you had Leicester uh, finding a way to win against Everton, uh, getting that 94th minute goal from Iannaccio, and that's a change from Brendan Rodgers. He, he made smart in-game adjustments. But I actually ended up not asking that question because I don't want him to leave. I think no. he is perfectly suited for Leicester. I think if he moves elsewhere, it's changing everything up. There's going to be expectations. And if he moves to a new team, it's logically going to be a team that are like up one category, even though Leicester are in second right now. Don't get me wrong. They've had a strong season. But historically speaking, you would say Arsenal are a bigger team than Leicester City. Uh, so I, I think if you move there, though, you're going to get automatic pressure. You're going to get a lot more coverage, a lot more scrutiny, and a lot less favorable press because I think he's got Leicester playing a really fun brand of soccer right now. And I think he would be crazy to leave. I think Arsenal would probably be smarter to look at somebody like Max Allegri uh, because that does give you a, a sort of permanence to the player manager you're bringing in. But then at the same time, they haven't really wanted to give over too much control to the manager. They would rather keep it just sort of as a coach. And then there's other people in charge of bringing in players and how they're going to play. So maybe he doesn't fit the bill there, but I, I think maybe giving some level of permanence wouldn't be the worst idea. That said, it sounds like Arsenal fans are pretty happy with Freddie Lundberg. He is that sort of club legend. I think maybe I'm just biased a little bit because it has not gone very well at Manchester United when they brought back a club legend to guide them through. It has worked out for Chelsea. So maybe we need one more to see how it all plays out in the end. And that gives us the answer. Best of yes, three. Yes, I think so. I think so. <laughs> um, one one person who will probably not be considered for the Arsenal job very quickly uh, is Kiki Sanchez Flores. I'm just going to give thumbs down to him. Sad thumbs down, but thumbs down nonetheless. Another uh, victim of the sack, sacked after one win in ten since taking over from uh, Javi Gracia. Maybe Watford themselves can wait until Marco Silva becomes available. Give him another go at Watford. Then maybe Everton come calling, and it just becomes this weird cycle that we're permanently stuck in. Potso's gonna potso. Eleven appointments since 2012. Oh boy. Oh boy. It's all good times. It's all good times. Up Is there. it? Is it really? Uh, probably not. Watford fans would probably disagree. So we have reached the point of the season when it does seem like the managerial sack race is no longer a race because everyone is just being sacked. It's just sort of a managerial sack season. <laughs> That's the what I'm calling off. it. Um, and it is the holiday season as well. And since the holiday season is upon us, we should talk about another sponsor. Uh, you could try a free online visit to get started with Hims, Santa's little helper, because Hims is a new wellness brand for men. 40% of men by the age of 40 struggle from not being able to get and maintain an erection. Uh, and men oftentimes turn to weird solutions. They write notes to Santa asking if he can help out. They turn to gas station counter supplements or expensive pills, injections where you probably don't want an injection. Instead, they could check out Hims, which is the gift that keeps on giving. 
we implore you not to buy any of your medical stuff from gas stations, by we the do. way. But uh, we we should, you should instead turn to Vohims.com, a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men as well. Hims connects you with real licensed doctors and FDA-approved pharmaceutical products to treat ED. Uh, there's well-known generic equivalents to brand-name prescriptions to help you combat ED. And the prescription solutions, they are backed by science. And that means right. business, baby. <laughs> uh, if you're approved by the doctor, products are shipped directly to your door. So that means you don't have any awkward visits. You don't have to, uh, you know, make like side eye eye contact with other people in the waiting room who are wondering why you're there and what you're doing there in, in the doctor's office. Instead, they're shipped right to your door. So that will mean the Christmas tree won't be the only thing going up. Well Hello. done to the people at Hims who write that copy. Um, <laughs> your holiday candle just found its match. So try Hims today by starting out with a free online visit. Go to forhims.com/totalsoccer. E-D. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash Total Soccer E-D. Forhams dot com slash Total Soccer E-D. Your holiday candle just found its match. That was a really good one as well. <laughs> Bravo. Uh, prescription products are subject to doctor approval and require an online consultation with a physician who will determine if a prescription is appropriate. You can see the website for full details and safety information, but this could cost hundreds if you went to uh, in person to a doctor's office or pharmacy. But instead, Ryan Bailey, what can our listeners do? What's that URL? What's that promo code? Point your internet computers towards forhims.com slash total soccer ED. That's forhims.com slash total soccer ED. Thank you very much to Hims for sponsoring today's episode. Ryan, we've talked about the Premier League at length. Let's talk a bit more about the rest of the world. Let's start with the Bundesliga. Mm. Bayern Munich dropping points, a 2-1 to loss to Bayer Leverkusen. Uh, I'm going to say thumbs up to this game for being absolutely ridiculous, unless you're a Bayern fan, in which case you probably found it ridiculous in a negative way. But you had uh, Leon Bailey, who I also have thumbs up for, for an absolutely ruthless brace of just two two opportunities on the counter. He finishes them perfectly. Inch perfect finishing from him. Less so from Bayern Munich, who could have really scored about 15 goals in this game, but kept having shots go wide or hit the post or be just barely blocked or just deflected. Bayern had so many opportunities to score. I genuinely don't know how they did not. 24 shots, Taylor, 11 wow. of which were on target. They hit the post about 17 times as well. How did they not more score more goals than this? It was a crazy game. I feel sorry for everybody who didn't watch this one because it was brilliant. I actually predicted this one would be a big win for Bayern in mm. my uh, betting preview, which I wrote uh, earlier last week. Uh, I think I went for something like 4-1 because um, previous instances when which these teams have met, that seems to be the way things are going. And of course, Hansi Flick with his record of scoring loads and loads of goals with this team wasn't to be, huh? But it does seem that Bayer Leverkusen have some sort of voodoo spell over Bayern because it was 3-1 when they last met in February. That ended a seven-game winning streak for Bayern back in February. Uh, They've actually scored in all of their last five meetings with Bayern. Someone's done their stats homework for their betting preview. And um, (laughs) (laughs) in many, many ways, I'm not surprised. I'm just surprised at how bad Bayern's finishing was. And I think it was summed up quite easily by um i think it was about the hour mark when they had a three on a three on one mm-hmm. of the keeper i think it was nabry perisic and i think muller all going towards the goal uh i think nabry passed it out to was it perisic who was cut out by a defender mm-hmm. with uh muller standing there waving his arms and how yep. on earth did that not go in yeah, I mean, I mean, really, Perisic had three chances that I can remember off the top of my head that definitely should have been goals or he should have done better with. It, it, it had for 
all the world the, the familiar symptoms of Bayern are at this point of the season like 11 points ahead and they finally drop points against Bayer Leverkusen who get sort of a plucky result and I just kept expecting Bayern to have the almost the Kevin De Bruyne moment with Man City where he just wallops one from distance and it's sort of like oh okay parity is restored and then they get one more late from like a Robert Lewandowski poacher's goal they win 3-2 they continue on that's kind of how it felt it was going to go instead maybe Robert Lewandowski like read too many of the headlines that have been happening this season or in the last month he had a few opportunities that that he did didn't do particularly well with either. Uh, overall, not the strongest of performances for Bayern Munich. Uh, maybe not the strongest performance for Bayern Leverkusen either, but they did what they needed to do. The loss drops Bayern to fourth in league, uh, one point behind Schalke, three behind Leipzig, four behind Gladbach. All three of those teams won this weekend, including Schalke with Weston McKinney in the lineup. I'm going to be talking uh, to a new friend uh, who we met in Germany about uh, all things Germany later on this week. So we don't need to talk too much more about the Bundesliga anymore, Ryan. German Ryan, friend. <laughs> German friend. Uh, anything else you want to talk about from this game? Uh, yeah, just that, that, that I thought Leon Bailey, who I'm going to claim as a relative, was excellent. Kevin Volland was excellent in this one. Uh, Sven Bender was excellent too. Very much enjoyed this game and very much enjoying the Bundesliga table. You've got none of uh, Bayern Munich or Borussia Dortmund in the top three right now. It is hella tight up there. <laughs> uh, by the way, I am on board for Leon Bailey being a distant relative of yours, and I'm going to build that narrative from here. So well he done to, to be, Ryan's right? third cousin once removed. Uh, I'm excited for that. I was... <laughs> Excited uh, for about the first 85 minutes of, of Atletico uh, Barcelona because it felt like another game that things were going to kind of go as expected and then they were going to pivot and it was going to be Atleti finally getting their way through, finally finding a goal. Instead, this one went the way we would have expected before the game. A great uh, one-two pass uh, combination between uh, Lionel Messi and Luis Suarez. Lionel Messi does what we would expect, finally gets a shooting opportunity, takes it well, gives Barcelona the late win, 1-0 to Barcelona. But it it didn't seem like they were going to find a way to win. And then Lionel Messi picks that ball up in the 86th minute, like 40 yards from goal. And it was just sort of like, oh, here we go. He's going to dribble. He's going to cut inside. He's going to find a way to make it happen. And that's precisely what happened. You, you remember that Simpsons episode where Homer Simpson joins the barbership, barbershop quartet? That and um, the suggested name is uh, Handsome Homer Plus Four. <laughs> I think Barcelona need a rebrand of uh, Messi Plus Ten in a similar vein. <laughs> I wish they'd kept that name. I do love the B Sharps, uh, a name that is funny but gets less funny every time you hear it. But <laughs> yes, <laughs> oh, I'm with you. Oh, I'm with you, my friend. But Baby that, that one... on board, Tostegan <laughs> was also good. Oh yes, I, we should we should take some time to talk about him because part of the reason why it felt like Atleti were destined to have a breakthrough was because they had some really good chances. The reason why they did not get that breakthrough is because of Ter Stegen, who had two different saves that he had no business making but found a way to make and ended up uh, really, I think, being the anchor that kept Barcelona in this one and then provided the foot, like the platform essentially for uh, uh, Lionel Messi to get that winner. But overall, like, it was basically a strong performance from a goalkeeper and then Lionel Messi did what he needed to do and Barcelona stayed top of the table yeah it's, it does seem odd because I actually predicted an upset for this one I predicted a 2-1 win for Atleti because I thought that 
Barca's results have been belying their form for far too long mm. now. They do, they're not playing well. They have lacked ideas. They've let in needless goals. They barely scraped past Lejanes, um last weekend. I just thought this was right for the upset, even given that Atleti are in pretty poor form. They've now lost three of their last five in all competitions. And they've made some bizarre choices, I thought. They took off João Felix a bit too early, I thought, mm. and seemed reticent to give him the service he needed anyway. And the midfield doesn't really create as much as it should. And I don't think Thomas Partey was as good as... I've seen him previously, and they, they started yeah. well. They had a good press going, but it just seems like they they fell away and succumbed to the inevitable messy one-two, as you mentioned at the top there. And it, se- I- it seemed like they wanted to keep. Uh, sorry to jump in. It just uh, the one thing that stood out to me there is like it seemed like they wanted to keep Thomas Partey back to sort of shield the back two uh, for mm. for Atleti and sort of really isolate Lionel Messi or Luis Suarez and always kind of have a three v two advantage. But as a result, I'm used to Thomas Partey being maybe five or ten yards further up, so he can step in and win those kind of loose balls, pick them up, and keep the attack going. Whereas in this game, I felt like he kept having to try to sprint to close down that ten or fifteen yards and and root routinely got outplayed or couldn't quite make a clean play on it, wasn't able to kind of keep possession going. And that that stood out to me as just it seemed as though he wasn't being kind of utilized to the full range of his effectiveness. So I got a question for you. Do Please. you think that Lionel Messi takes Ernesto Ververde's kids to school? Do you think <laughs> do you think that he makes Valverde's breakfast for him? Do you think he cleans his car? Because he seems to do everything else for him. He really but, does. Uh, Valverde earns twenty four million a year, apparently. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how much that Messi deserves to take, but actually it's a bit harsh because maybe Tostegan like does his groceries as yeah. well and maybe brushes his teeth for him as well. But it <laughs> it seems like he seems like he's not quite pulling his weight as a manager and uh, there are a lot of Barca fans who are quite furious at him and quite furious at the fact that the board will do nothing to remove him this season, particularly <laughs> looking at the league table, at which they are top by a goal and um, I think as you mentioned in the show notes there it's going to make that Clasico mighty interesting it certainly is because yeah you've got uh, Madrid uh, topping Alaves 2-1 second half goals from Sergio Ramos Danny Carvajal Gareth Bale playing getting booed again but now you have yeah both of them uh, one and two in the table level on points uh, Barcelona ahead with a goal difference of 20 versus uh, 19 so yeah that game is going to be pretty nuts. Uh, I would say that we will still get Lionel Messi doing Lionel Messi things. I think if he were out on Ernesto Valverde, he probably doesn't go quite as hard in those final couple minutes, doesn't try so desperately to make something happen. I can't tell if that was him wanting to make a statement to like, back Valverde, or if it was just that he had been routinely kicked and knocked around a little bit. There's the sequence when he has the ball, he's counterattacking, and two different players try to foul him, uh, mm. and neither one can actually pull it off and ends in a good shooting chance for Barcelona. Uh, but I wonder if maybe that was just the thing that finally like tipped it over into him just being like, you know what, that's it, I'm, go- I'm going ham on you people. Uh, but who knows, either way, I'm guessing he'll be a... Slightly large performer in that uh, Classico when it happens. Hopefully yeah. it happens. Hopefully it doesn't get rained out. Like, uh, I don't know what the name is for the Monaco PSG derby. El Cachico. Be- El Cachico, thank you. Which used to be a bigger deal back when it- they were one and two in the table. When it's PSG one and Monaco, I think, are like 14th right now or 15th in the table. They're pretty far back there, like 17 points off the top spot. Uh, it's not quite as big of a deal, and then it becomes no deal at all when uh, you have bad weather that postpones the game due to weather and flooding. So thumbs down to bad weather. Uh, we don't get to talk about Monaco PSG. Can, but I, does can I ask allow a question? Us- Go ahead. When, when was the last time a top-tier European match was rained off? 
and particularly in Monaco, where I assume they have the money and technology to seed the clouds and have it never rain. Yeah, right? You, you would assume they would. I, I really cannot remember. I can think of times that snow did it, that like there was like such massive snowfall that you just couldn't clear the field. I can think of a time that a volcano erupted and they uh, had to deal with that. Oh, that um, one in Watford. But- yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know the last time a game was rained out, aside from uh, making its third appearance on the show, my local amateur league. That happens sometimes. <laughs> well, to be fair, you do get waterlogged pictures at Christmas sometimes, but not uh-huh. quite in the circumstance and the drama of heavy rain that we saw here. Not so much. Not so much. So let's instead talk about the the drama that unfolded with uh, the Euro draw. We have our group set for the most part, aside from a few teams that still have to kind of play their way in. Uh, but we've got some fairly uh, interesting draws. Uh, Ryan, which teams do you think, starting off, will be the happiest with the way the draw went down? Uh, definitely not whoever is in Group F with uh, <laughs> with Portugal, France, and yeah. Germany, yeah. Uh, which looks like a tricky one. So, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I'm I'm loath. I'm, I'm with Kevin De Bruyne on this, who was quite anti this competition, quite anti this draw because Belgium's group they had mm-hmm. what was it three of the teams already decided before they went into the draw, was it, which was a little bit absurd due to the way things worked out and the way that Russia had to be separated from Ukraine and mm-hmm. whatnot. But uh, it's I don't know. Where's the quote here? De Bruyne says, This feels like a competition, distortion, a fake competition. Football is not really football anymore. It's becoming a business. Man City's Kevin De Bruyne there. Um, wow. with, with the comments which uh, yeah, that ring a little bit tone deaf. <laughs> but he's got a point. And this whole tournament, I mean... Well, to be fair, he was, he did grow up as a huge fan of the uh, UAE government. I think Kevin De Bruyne has always been a huge fan of uh, Middle Eastern foreign policy and Man City. I think that's that's uh, definitely a one-two punch for him since a small child. Yeah, I, I, I do. Th- has he got a tattoo supporting human rights violations? I'm sure he has. We can look into that later. But anyway, I think an unha- another unhappy team must be Wales because they've got a they got a lot of travel coming up. They've got two yeah. games in Baku and then they've got a game in Rome. Against um, Italy. That's a rough one. Against, yeah, they've got to go to the home team in that tournament for your third <laughs> game. That's nearly 3,000 miles of travel there. Uh, you've got Wales versus Switzerland in Baku taking place there. Uh, the government, the governing body, UEFA, has pledged to offset the carbon footprint of every supporter because obviously there's a lot of, there's 12 hosts, 12 cities uh, going mm-hmm. on and there's, a lot, there's going to be a lot of movement around Europe for this one. I'd, I'd love to know how they're going to do that. They're going to have to plant a lot of trees, aren't they? <laughs> they, they really... Really, really are. Although I think it's one of those things that no one really knows how to offset a carbon footprint. So they'll just say it and then you know, they'll plant like three trees and be like, that's it. That's enough. That's, I'm, just, I'm assuming that's how they'll get around it. Maybe a UEFA executive says, I was going to go to the Maldives, but I'll go somewhere closer. Is that good enough for you? Does that offset it? I, but I think similar, like there was the uh, Louis C.K., much as I'm loath to reference him. Uh, he has that joke about how like he felt good about entertaining the idea of giving up his seat to uh like a an army like a soldier basically like that was enough like just thinking about it maybe that's what the executive would do in that case like thinking about not going to the maldives for a holiday is in their mind offsetting the carbon footprint i'm assuming good intentions are just as good as action that's what i find but to answer your original question Mm -hmm. which i believe was which team should be happy yeah Dare I say it, England in Group I, D. I would agree. With mm-hmm. uh, Croatia and Czech Republic, uh, two teams I have historically uh, confused in my head, and I apologize yep. for that, but uh, that would be facing both of them. Um, Euro, Euro 96 is Czech Republic, I would like to refer to them as, and uh, Croatia, <laughs> uh, the superior opponents in last summer's World Cup to England in the semi-final. Yes, uh, and the other team to be joining them to be determined from the playoff path will be either Norway, Serbia, Israel, 
or Scotland. Come on, Scotland. Come, Come on, on Scotland. Scotland. So, well, Scotland would actually have to do something unusual for them. They'd have to win two games to make this yeah. happen. So I don't think it's going to happen, but yeah. I'd love to see England-Scotland at the Euros again. That was As great. That's one of, the, uh, one of the highlights of my life, England-Scotland at Euro 96. Loved it. England, Scotland, uh, and Croatia and Czech Republic would be three teams, I guess, for England that like they have more than a little bit of familiarity with. So I think they would be more than okay with that with that draw for sure. Mm. Um, I did hear a couple different uh, journalists who were at the draw uh, talking to Croatian journalists, talking to Czech reporters, and it was sort of a like, yeah, England should be pretty happy with this draw. Croatia not quite as strong as they were at the World Cup. You've got a lot of players a year older. You've got some players in a state of flux. Um, Luka. Modric has missed a lot of time this season due to injury. So, like, how, like, what his performance level is going to be is a big question mark for Croatia. So, yes, I think England should be very happy. The only downside, as I understand it, is that uh, the way the the bracket is made up, uh, if they win their group, then they play the runner-up of Group F, uh, which you mentioned contains France, Germany, and Portugal. Uh, one more team to join in there, but it's expected to probably be a minnow. So my assumption is you'll get one of France, Germany, or Portugal playing England if England top their group. Ay ay ay, fun times. Mm. And I think the other, maybe the other team I'd say who should be reasonably happy with the draw is Spain. Uh, they're a ho- obviously they're a host in this tournament, and they've got Sweden and Poland and mm. another to determine team. I think that's a pretty good path for them as well. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you there. I think Poland uh, like rose up the FIFA rankings by not playing the like not playing friendlies and intentionally doing so to increase their ranking. Uh, mm. With with the Euros, it didn't matter as much because the rankings were just about how well you did in qualification, and Spain did quite well. They do have the issue of Luis Enrique coming back and the sort of drama that has unfolded as a result of him taking the manager position back. Uh, but I think that will probably be sorted, or at least as sorted as it needs to be by the time the tournament. Uh, kicks off. I do well, they think- do. Um, they do have a record of firing managers like a day before a tournament starts. Well, so we'll see about that. that. <laughs> the other thing they should be wary of, of course, Poland. Uh, Robert Lewandowski's finished. He hasn't scored in two games now. He's yeah, done as it. an entity, it's so uh, they don't have to worry about Poland anymore. They do not. Um, two more teams that I think will be slightly okay with their draws. Uh, Belgium should be pretty pleased. Belgium had about as good of a qualification campaign as you can have. I yep. think they only conceded three goals, maybe four, in all of uh, European qualifying, so that's decent. They find themselves in a group with Denmark, Finland, and Russia. Russia, uh, a team that is very much changed from when last we saw them at the World Cup. They will not have the sort of home team boost and maybe some of the scientific boosts that went with being the home team there. Well, you, you uh, say Denmark, got, uh, Belgium got an easy ride there, but they are facing two hosts there. They're playing in St. Petersburg and they're playing in Copenhagen against Russia true. and Denmark. So that might true. be tricky. All right. All right, all right. You're making some compelling arguments here. Plus, as we know, <laughs> Timu Puki can score wherever he wants, whenever he wants. So just, you just like Musa Sissoko scores when he wants. Did you hear that chant at the Tottenham game? No. Scores when he wants for Musa Sissoko. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> uh, my final one that I wanted to mention, uh, Group A, you've got Italy, Switzerland, Turkey, and Wales. Yes. Um, not to say that anybody should be like too thrilled about anybody in that group, because I think that you could make arguments for all four teams uh, to have a decent tournament. Uh, maybe you'd have to make a little bit of a harder argument for Wales, but uh, Turkey topping their group ahead of France, Switzerland historically doing well in Euros, and then Italy 
is a team that I, despite everything that's gone on in Italy this season, I don't particularly want to go to Italy, but I do think they'll be very interesting to watch because they are very young. They're relying on younger players. They're relying on players who, I think like Roberto Mancini, I forget who it was who he capped before they'd even made a cap with their uh, Serie A team, but he seems more than content to uh, be experimental, to give new players opportunities and see what happens. And so I think you'll get a lot of maybe strange results and weird results in that group, uh, which makes it pretty captivating to me. Other ones we haven't really talked about too much. Group C, Austria, Netherlands, Ukraine, one more team to join uh, once qualifying is sorted out. You talked about Group E. I think we've rounded everybody else out then, right? Yeah, it sounds like fun. That Group F um, is obviously the one that's getting the most yeah. attention, though, isn't it? Portugal, France. And Germany, oh, that poor team that's going to join them. They're just making up the numbers there. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a question for you about that, though. Uh, One final question. Daryl is always of the opinion that it cannot be considered a a group of death if one of the teams is significantly weaker than everybody else. So I guess in his mind, France, Germany, Portugal, you would need one team that is like decently to moderately good in order for that to balance out. As I said, it seems more likely that we're going to get a minnow uh, coming into that group. So would that still be a group of death for you, Ryan, even if it is one smaller team, but then those three teams? I think Daryl's parameters are a bit harsh there because I when do you ever get four completely solid teams in a group? Mm. You have to have one weak league in Champions League or in these kind of tournaments. There's always one team who's kind of the whipping boy. I think the, the definition is when you've got three teams, when you've got two you've got too few spaces for big teams to go through. I think that's the sort of definition of a group of death, is it not? In your face, Grove. In your face. Uh, I Ryan feel bad because I, I mocked, um, mocked Daryl's accent last week, and then I'm mocking his definition of a group of death. I feel bad. It's okay. It's going to be a running tradition that you mock something about Daryl. <laughs> Aw, he's so next lovely. Week, next week should be him having to wear glasses. <laughs> but until then, Ryan Bailey, uh, we'll leave it there. I hope you enjoy your trip to Vegas. I don't know. Will that mean that you can still do the weekend review, or will you just have to do it with sunglasses on and a bunch of Advil in your head? To be determined. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll play it by ear. But until then, uh, Ryan Bailey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk all things soccer with me once again. Always a pleasure. Never a chore.